Hello, and welcome to the Ever Widening Circles podcast, designed to give you more joy, less fear, and no end to the evidence that a brighter future is possible, even in these complicated times. This podcast will give you a fresh perspective on the world around you. We want you to hear from thought leaders in a wave of progress well underway around the globe that almost no one knows about. I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of Ever Widening Circles. Since 2014, we've been restoring people's hope in the future by writing thousands of articles about insight and innovation going uncelebrated in our world. And along the way, we've been having incredible conversations with thought leaders that we are now sharing. Today, I'm going to chat with Craig Roland Martin. He's a co-host and business partner with Earl Bridges, who I also spoke to recently. So there's another great podcast for you to listen to. They're co-hosts of an amazing documentary series called The Good Road. It's frequently jaw-dropping and terrifically fun. And you know, you're going to learn about people doing the most extraordinary things in the world that really fundamentally will change your perspective on all the goodness that's out there. You know, one of my original theses is that we don't have a lack of goodness in the world. We have a lack of awareness. And my guest today, Craig Martin, is surely going to open our minds on that topic. So, Craig, give us a little introduction of yourself. You can do a far better job than I can. Welcome. Thank you so much. And you don't know how much of a thrill this is for me to be on with you. Uh, You and I became fast friends years ago, and I am just ecstatic that you even invited me. So thank you. So I was uh, born and raised in Bangkok, Thailand, lived there until I was about 18, came back to the United States and went to Baylor University. At the time, having grown up overseas, I didn't really know a ton about America. I only knew really, we would come back every four years for about a year time. And my parents were from South Louisiana. Well, my dad was actually from St. Louis, but my we came back to South Louisiana where my mom was from. And I just remember not really liking America that much because it just was a quirky place that I was not familiar with. And, you know, the kids didn't know what to think of me. So I came back at 18 and went to Baylor University, and everything changed at university for me. And I just started really embracing, you know, living in the U.S. and being part of American society. And my experience there was so rich. It's, you know, where I met my wife. It's where I found my career profession, which is a crazy story. But I wound up in the TV and film space and went to undergrad and graduate there. Worked for a nonprofit for almost, I'd like to say, a quarter of a century, (laughs) which makes me sound really, really old. (laughs) But Um, you're you're so done. Yeah. And at that time, I, I was working globally. It was an international nonprofit where I worked globally. And I had been in war zones, disaster zones, almost 90 countries filming and doing work, telling stories. So a uh, friend of mine from the International School of Bangkok, who I attended with, was one of the very first people who reached out to me. In fact, I think he was the first person. Even though we had not seen each other since high school, we were Facebook friends, and Earl reached out and said, hey, man, sorry to hear what's going on with you. Can I call you later? And what's your phone number? And I said, absolutely. And I'll try to say this without getting emotional, but Earl literally, in so many ways, at this stage in my life and career, rescued me. 
he and a f- very dear friend of ours who I graduated also with from the International School of Bangkok, Patty Demartini Williams, invited me to go on a trip with them to Nepal, Myanmar, and Vietnam. And I was going to be the video guy, the quote video guy. And I went along and just filmed the work. And on that trip, because you spend a lot of hours in vans and planes and all that, Earl and I immediately picked up where we had left off in our high school years and became, you know, very close. So almost immediately, it was so weird how that happened, but we just, we just had fun. We were having fun. And at one point he said, Craig, I have an idea for a TV show. (laughs) Well, for somebody who's worked in TV and media for many years and had had some success, I had just released a film, a documentary in theaters, and it was, you know, pretty successful. When you hear somebody who comes from like a tech business world and they Mm -hmm. say they have an idea, you're always like, all right, Skippy, you know, (laughs) tell me what you got. I'm dying to hear it. (laughs) But, but, and it was probably about, you know, a third the way through the trip. And he said, I want to do a show that is Anthony Bourdain style, edgy, raw, cool about philanthropy. And I have to admit, I was almost, I was stunned. I was stunned at how quickly and how easy it was for him to pitch me. Cause I'm like, holy cow, I want to do that show. Oh. <laughs> so that was the beginnings of this journey I've been on now for, uh, gosh, four years. Now, so many people would hear that pitch. I want to do a show, Edgy, about philanthropy and not have a clue what that means. Because, you know, even the word philanthropy means very different things for some. Yeah. Yeah. So give us a little bit more of a deep dive there. So charity, philanthropy, there's a million words for it. And they all do have kind of distinct differences in what they mean. For us, for what it means for us is, and it and it really doesn't necessarily always have to relate to things financial, although it often does because money is a resource that is often needed in, in that endeavor. But it really just means helping other people to make the world a better place. I mean, period. That's what that's what all of it's meant. You know, the way I grew up, we just were taught that from a very young age that you help other people. That's kind of what you do in life, and so. It's really, but it's a focus on people who do that. So it's it's funny because in the TV world, you know, the show started with the title of Good All Over. And through some consultation with the, our presenting station, what PBS World calls our presenting station in Washington, D.C., WETA, that we changed it to The Good Road. And I'll, But I'll never forget early on in our discovery of the show when it was Good All Over, we had a guy who's pretty, you know, done pretty well in uh, TV say, what, you're going to do a show about good in the world? He's like, that is TV death. He's like, nobody wants to hear any or see anything about good stuff. There's a reason people watch NASCAR and it's because they want to watch the cars wreck. You know, it has nothing to do with good. It's about people want the sensationalism of bad. And, you know, when you're on a track that you're already on and you feel passionate about, you know, 
I didn't even know how to answer him because I'm like in my mind saying, you are so dead wrong, dude. You don't get it, man. You don't get it. People are sick of this. And so we just kind of disregarded what he had to say and moved on. Yeah. So, and, and we've always had the conviction. Well, I think that you, you guys, I've seen a bunch of your episodes and they are absolutely riveting and fun and expanding in every possible way that, you know, you, if there, if anybody could make the good entertaining and uplifting, you've done it. We have so many notions that we have to get over to move to open a new chapter in this world. And, and one of them is that people doing good in the world are somehow there. Remember the negative connotation that used to be on do gooders. Right. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. I noticed that that, that, that worm is turning recently. I think we're glad we, to have been, the help. We embrace that. We embrace do gooders. We love that. Yeah. 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 I think in my little email send off, I've got a, a few, few words and then I, I, I un, unashamed do gooder is one of the things in my email address. Yeah. So, okay. So let's get to some of these stories. So if people understand fundamentally Craig and Earl have gone around the world Probably with a general direction when they land in, let's say, Kenya. You and I right. have both been to the same, yeah. one of the largest slums in the world. And, and know all the same people. <laughs> and know all, I saw pictures of you with the same, with the same people yeah. that we were with just today when I was kind of studying up for our, our uh, interview. Um, so what essentially Craig and Earl do is they go around the world, start a general direction, and maybe you, you've gone to specific places. You can improve my way of thinking and talking about this, but they, they are perfectly open to stumbling upon stories of progress and extraordinary service to others. And then they just follow those stories wherever they lead. And in their show, you are meeting some characters that will own a place in your heart forever and upend many of the assumptions you have about people who are doing good in the world. So, you know, tell us a story. Well, I, I actually have a book of Craig's right here with me today. <laughs> Craig uh, has a wonderful book that I've been reading called Confessions of a Philanthropologist. So let's start right there. Craig, give us a definition of a philanthropologist and where you guys got that word. So Earl kind of coined the term, and it's a mashup of philanthropy and anthropology, things that we both, just because of our lives and our careers and the way we grew up and stuff, have, have uh, spent a lot of time on. So we, he mashed it up, and I was immediately, in fact, it, it, our podcast is called Philanthropology just because we love that word so much, and we, we call ourselves philanthropologists. But so my book was really a collection of those stories from previous to the good road in a lot of ways to the stories that I had. And a lot of those stories revolve around central themes. And so the through line on my book is basically to be able to help and serve others, you have to love them. And, you know, that word get, is a cheap word sometimes. It's a very cheap word. And when I say love, I mean truly love. That's like forgive people who who are almost seemingly unforgivable. You have to love them. And then the other thing, which I think as an American, and I embrace that language now, I used to feel not very American, but now I'm very American in, in a lot of ways. But as an American specifically, 
I would say if I had to self-critique us as a, as a people, you have to go into each of those overseas settings and see people as your equal. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, I mean, truly your equal. Mm-hmm. I've been with, you know, I tell one story of being with this guy who is an imam from Islam and he's reading and this guy's like saying he can't even read. And that's a disparagement against people who are non-literate, who don't, necessarily read that doesn't mean those people who are non-literate that's a by the way a huge portion of the world and just because they don't read that doesn't mean that they're dumb or they don't understand the world and things around them in fact quite to the contrary a lot of people that i've met tribal peoples over the over the years who lived in really remote places who just had a tradition of passing on story you know i'm a storyteller so i love this concept of from just rote memory passing a story on almost down to the exact detail on and on and on for generations those people are brilliant they're every bit my equal if not superior so I think that those are two things that come out in my book. And I love any kind of story that kind of uh, emphasizes that I, I, you know, I just hate prejudice in any form. And if you don't know a people, um, you can't judge them. So for me, when I go into a setting where, you know, a lot of people would prejudge, I'm, I'm learning all the time. I'm trying to figure out what it is about them that makes them tick. I will tell you that probably 99% of the time. I have had a few people that I felt like were not good and were trying to do harm to other people, which is always discouraging to me. But 99% of the time I found certain things out, and this comes out in the book, people love their families. By and large, they love each other. They just are trying to survive by taking care of their families specifically. And this is a huge deal that people don't think of, but I have been time after time. If you think, if I asked you, Dr. Linda, what the top priority would be, and I apologize because you're a healthcare professional as a dentist, what is the number one thing? It's not that their kids will be fed or have healthcare. It's that their kids will be educated almost every time because every parent knows. And if you think about that, if you internalize that here in our, and even in our culture, you know, everybody spends time figuring out how to get their kids in the good schools. And then, you know, and, and of course, you know, I don't diminish the other two. Of course, you're always, I want to feed my kids. They say to a fault, I'm trying to fatten them up or something. But education is at the top of the stack in a lot of ways, because most people realize that unless, you know, your kid can have a job and be successful if they don't, if they're, if they're not educated. So, that was a huge learning for me throughout my career and remains as one of those things. It's kind of a top priority issue for me. Yeah. You know, you're getting to a, a little place I marked in the book. You're hovering around that. So I've got to have you tell a story. So I'm always trying to kind of sum up the takeaway messages from my conversations like this with thought leaders, that the things for me that I'm going to take out of this conversation and use probably in the next four hours today and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And I think that this concept of always considering everyone our equal is probably amazing path for us to, to start on right now in these, in these challenging times, even the people that don't think like us, 
if we consider my husband and I, Chuck, my, uh, you, you may remember this, Craig, Chuck was captain of the basketball team at Kentucky, which back in the ni- early 1980s put us, you know, in, in such an extraordinary position. That was probably the premier basketball program in the world at that time. And one of the things we learned then was that everyone puts their pants on exactly the same way, <laughs> no yes, matter what, no matter what. And any veil that we might had of starry-eyed about influencers or however you want to you want to position people that we somehow have put in lofty positions. No, <laughs> we all have crazy families. We have complexities that we're just beating our heads against the wall about. We are we have fear. We and we have childhood trauma. Almost everyone <laughs> suffers from all these same things. And if we would just get over this notion that we're somehow better than others, no matter where we find others. I think we start on a kind of a level playing field that we can just take off from. Right. Okay. So you've got to share the story from the book. You tell this great story that I think illustrates this point so much of how we, like there's a gap in our knowledge about the other and we just hurriedly fill it. But really tell the story you were talking to a really neat fellow named Bob. He was showing you around Sudan. And there's a story in the book about meeting some Maasai people that were living in a really mountainous region. And he was standing there with them when a jet flew over. And, you know, he explained to them that what was going on in that thing, 36,000 feet in the air. Go tell, share that story with us and the, the lesson. <laughs> Yeah, so a friend of mine who worked for many years in Kenya, Bob Calvert, was talking about being out with the Maasai. And he he was one of those people that truly saw the Maasai as his equal and loved them. And in his work with them, he was talking to these old village elders and an airplane flew over, you know, jet commercial airliner flew over. And they started asking questions and, you know, at face value, you might think, oh, wow, they just don't know anything. And But then you think about life experience and their experience and the fact that, I mean, they can kill a lion with their bare hands. Literally, this is true. And I don't even know the first thing about lions. I would probably be, die in within seconds. But they looked up at this airplane and they said, Mr. Bob, tell us, it's so small. And he goes, yes, but people are on there. And they're like, Hmm, people are on there. It's like, yeah, they, they, it's just, you only see it small from here, but it's actually very big. Oh, okay. And then they said, and so what do they do? And he's, he said, oh, they sit on the on seats and they go from place to place. Oh, okay. And then he started telling them, because at this point he's got a little bit of a, he's a, you know, a little bit of a jokester. So he starts realizing that they're kind of starting to slowly visualize this, this idea. And, you know, of course their visual is maybe a local Matatu, which is like a little van that they've seen drive by or something. So they're like, Oh, they're all crammed in. And he's like, no, they have big seats and they even have, you know, he, he had shown them movies before movies on there. Oh my gosh, that blew their mind. And then when he said that they brought around food and you ate that they had on the plane, for the Maasai, the idea of food being like a little pot that you've done over a fire, (laughs) it just completely blew their worldview because the idea of being on this big 
tube in the sky with a bunch of other people watching movies and eating from a meal that had been prepared on the plane was so foreign to them, much like it would be for me would be so foreign to be face-to-face with a lion and try to survive. So just fun, fun, funny story. Absolutely. So then you go go to make the point that we do that to other people's lives all the time. Yes, we, we do. We have this gap. We are We tell ourselves stories about how the, the other lives or what they think or what their motivations are, and they're not very often right. I bet you've seen that hundreds of times in all, in all your travels. I've seen it even just personally. I, it happens to me still all the time. I and I, as much as you know, I like to think I'm, you know, Mister like empathy towards everybody and their plight and whatever. I still have moments where I'm like, I kick myself later. Like, why did you assume certain things about their lives? And even their the construct of their lives, so for me it it really is a daily it really is a daily struggle. You know, one of the top words that I use with all of my ideas on these things is humility. I feel like if you can just be humble enough and say, like, yeah, I screwed up, I didn't get that. Um, There's so many parts of life that I don't understand. Quite frankly, I don't truly understand people from rural Louisiana. I just don't. It's not that I have anything against people from r- very rural Louisiana, but I just don't necessarily understand them. Now, I understand them a little bit better because of my mother, but there are just parts of, you know, even the U.S. that I don't fully understand. I will tell you in my career, there have been a couple moments, and, and this one is in the book, where my wife would say that I am welcoming and loving of everybody, even when the facts seem like they might not prove out that that's the wisest thing to be or to do. Yeah. She calls me naive. Yeah, um, Earl Earl kind of mentioned that about you yeah. in, in her interview with so, you. Well, and, and my favorite story on that is, and even looking back, I'm like, what was I thinking? But I, it, it worked out fine. So I was in Banda Aceh right after the tsunami. And if you don't know anything about Banda Aceh, it's in Indonesia it's uh, one of the far western parts of the, or the island chains, and it is the most known to be the uh, most radical kind of part of Indonesia. And I was with these guys, and we were filming the post-tsunami de- devastation. And I was with these guys, and they, these Achenese who wanted to show me a body that they had discovered and wanted to know if I wanted to film it. And the group I was with, a bunch of Americans, they were all off talking and everything. And as a good documentarian, I'm like, yeah, let's go. We got to go. So we start walking out in this field and about 10, 15 minutes into this field. And now I'm looking back and all the people I was with are like looking small, like that little airplane flying through the sky. And I started noticing, because I had not noticed it before, one guy... (laughs) was wearing an Osama bin Laden t-shirt, but in a positive way, like this is my hero. And then another guy had a Mujahideen, you know, vest on. And here I am, the the lone American walking out with these five guys. And at that moment, I thought, you are the dumbest man on the planet. You're about to get kidnapped, hijacked, whatever else. 
But, you know, Dr. Linda, we get out to where the body was. And at this point, we were there probably a month or so after the event. You know, it it, it it had decomposed and things. They did their thing. They did, you know, this prayer thing. And then, then, and then we walked back. And I, and I still look back on that and think, they, they didn't have any ill intent for me. They may have a different idea of life and value and things, but, and, and all kinds of stuff, but they didn't, they didn't, they weren't ill intentioned. They knew what I would want to see. And so, you know, but my wife, I told her that story. You're like, what? (laughs) Well, (laughs) this is it. Like when we follow our heart, like, do we somehow, is there some kind of a, a conscious thread that we have connect of connection to others that we can tell when love is present and when it's oh, not present. Yeah, I believe that's true. And there have been moments where I felt a sense of danger and just because of our own backgrounds and even, you know, my face as a, as a older white man, there are certain implications with that. And I have felt at times, but you know, I think one of my gifts just as a human being is that I am pretty good at diffusing that very quickly. And it's only because, and you know, people, when they get nervous in that kind of cross-cultural situation, they, when they get nervous, they get stressed. And what happens in the stress is their face, they kind of, their brow furrows Mm -hmm. and they start frowning and they start fidgeting. I'm just always that guy who's got the smile and like, Hey man, what's going on, dude? And, and that diffuses almost every situation I've been in like that. It's not everyone. I've had ones that I was like afraid for my life. The funniest, of course, which is Earl talks about when Craig says stop the van because these guys are coming in Uganda down the road with this circumcision ritual they do. And they're, they're, as Earl says, they're not very happy because about what's about to happen to a couple of the guys, which is the circumcision ritual. And they're usually hopped up on things, you know. And so I jump out of the van with my camera. And they have these machetes and they're scraping them on the ground and they all start surrounding me because I'm the Western white guy with the camera. (laughs) And they start saying to me, money, money, money. And I'll tell you, you know what I did in that moment? I got my wallet out as fast as I could and gave them money (laughs) because I was terrified. But you know what? They actually, it made for great video. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it did. And that's what you were there for. Yeah, exactly. I'm a documentarian. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you know, there's a good story of that kind of leads me to something. I'm always trying to find useful things for people to take away from these conversations. So right now, um, we're and when this, this podcast is going to come out, and likely for the foreseeable future, we're going to be in a zone where we need to trust our instincts, but also give people a break, like give people the benefit of the doubt, not always assume the worst intention in others, right? So tell us what you think about that. Tell us what you've learned out in this crazy wide world that would be useful for our times, like I'm always talking to people about the fact that the internet and social media is only a slice of reality. And yet we're right. all running around acting like it is reality. Give, give me your thoughts on, on that. 
So I have to say that, you know, in this moment, of course, with COVID and, and the challenges that we have, that probably the most difficult thing for me is that I'm used to being out in the world. I'm used to being outside in my, honestly, I hate to say it. It's kind of not hate. It's weird to, to say, but my comfort zone is being overseas, traveling, being around other cultures and all that. I actually watched a really hard movie to watch last night called Capernaum about a young kid in Gaza. And it just made me long for being amongst the poor of our world, the you know internationals of our world. So what's, what's that made me do? That has made me, first of all, it's made me be here at home a bunch more than I would ever want to be. And so I'm online a lot. I've had to adapt and try to figure out my own cross-cultural understandings of people in a way that I'm not good at. I'm just not good. First of all, I'm not good at talking to people through, you know, platforms like Facebook. Mm -hmm. I've just admittedly, I'm not good at that because I am a person who by nature is kind of preachy, like I, you got to come over to my way of thinking or it upsets me. Um, oh, that's so, so unusual. Almost no one's like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and part of that's just because I just want other people to, you know, to understand the world. And it's, I'll be honest, it's very frustrating when people have a very small worldview and I've had to set aside my arrogance in that regard. But, you know, one of the things that gives me great pleasure is that, well, first of all, the COVID crisis has forced me to stay at home some, which I had, I have 17 year old or I have twin 17 year olds. And I had, since they were, before they were born, I had been on the road constantly. So this has forced me in a good way to be with my family more, which has been fantastic. And I've loved every minute of it, but it's also forced me in my neighborhood I, I live in a fun neighborhood in Richmond called Carytown, and there's everybody you could think of swirls around from the wealthiest of the wealthy to the poorest of the poor. And I just enjoy walking out my door and being able to be in that world because that's how Bangkok kind of was where I grew up. But one thing that I've found challenging is with face masks and other things to be able to smile and express warmth and, and love to people just visually. So I've tried to figure out ways with my mask. Like, you know, I, I you kind of grin and you kind of raise your, you know, it's hard to see, but I think people can kind of, and people kind of appreciate it. They're like, cause I don't know about you, but when, when COVID first hit, everybody was like, I don't even want to look at another person. You're like, I don't think we can transmit the virus through looks yeah. at each other. <laughs> so I've just tried to be more positive in my own kind of world right now. But yeah, I think, you know, the digital world provides so much amazing freedom and exposure that is just, there's a million positives to it. Um, but there are the, there is the dark side of it. And I try to as much as possible to stay away from it. One of the things that, that we are involving ourselves, and I'm personally very much involving myself in right now, is virtual reality. Mm-hmm. And there was a story from our show where we connected. We, we weren't able to do it fully in virtual reality because of technical problems, but we went to a place called Pemba, which is in the Zanzibar archipelago, and we connected up a school on this remote island that had no electricity, completely remote, to a Title I school in Nashville called Hunter's Lane High School. 
And the executive director principal of that school in Nashville agreed to do this. She was not agreed. She's thrilled. And we were initially going to connect them up through VR. But one of the things that she's told me, and I, and I totally get this, that her kids in Nashville are much like those kids on the island of Pemba. They are so poor that they actually don't have the resource to even go into downtown Nashville about four miles away. They live in a community which, because of the poverty there, is basically an island in a city. And so the joy of those kids to be able through virtual reality to actually experience things like Paris or in this case, we just connected them up to this remote island in East Africa. I mean, how cool is that? That's what technology does that's good. Okay. And that is at the fundamental uh, core, the message that I'm talking to the world about in TV news interviews and writing is that we have a choice. What happened with the internet is that it came upon us. It, it overtook us before we could think about a user manual. We, right. and, and attention, what we give our attention to became the, the operating system there. And now that's the only thing that rises to the top is what we give our attention to. And of course, there were people willing and able to hijack our future by tuning into our most primitive impulses, fear, anger, and scarcity. And so here we are with a lot of fear, anger, and scarcity rising to the top of the internet when folks like you and I have been out there in the world learning that that people are basically and overwhelmingly generous and genius. I, I'm, I'm sure you just have... Tell us a story of somebody who is looking straight down, straight down the road into an unknown but undauntedly going forward. Some philanthropist, some person who's doing good in the world regardless of anything distracting. So a good friend of mine, and honestly, I'm, I'm going to give you him as an example, because even though I have personally not been with him, I've heard all of his stories. Missionary for many years working in Haiti, Patrick Moynihan. Oh, yes. yes. He, Patrick, Patrick is the kind of person that is not swayed by the risk and the dangers and even though, you know, Irishmen from Rhode Island going down to Haiti and the culture shocks there. And, you know, this is the thing, Dr. Linda, sometimes we've talked, he and I have talked about this a lot. Some, sometimes people view this as kind of the Mosquito Coast mm-hmm. thing, the idea. There's, you know, this idea that you're going to take something to somebody that they don't have. And Mm -hmm. oftentimes that's flawed. And, you know, there's the concept of like the white savior complex and stuff. But that's not who Patrick is. And that's not how he approached life. And he went down, down there truly to start a school. And he did. And it was, it's amazing. So people like that inspire me every day. That's why, that's why we wanted to focus on this as a topic because the people I have seen who are completely out of their comfort zone going into a situation where they can overcome that and not just it's not just overcome that it's actually like I've learned to do from decades of experience with it and I was kind of born into it some of these folks are complete newcomers to this this idea 
if they can go into those situations and not just be able to survive them, but thrive in them, those people are some of the most exciting people I've ever known. And it's, you can see it in their faces. They actually draw energy from doing good. They actually find like satisfaction at times in being in the poorest of the poorest situation, even if they came from the wealthiest, wealthiest situation. That to me, it's a beautiful thing to watch. Well, you know, the organization and the man you're talking about, we wrote and you introduced me to the Haitian project. Right. And yeah. so we, we wrote one, one of the articles I wrote that I'm most proud of on the Everwinding Circles website, where there are thousands of articles about really amazing people, is that if, if, if people put uh, the Haitian project into the search box at Everwinding Circles, you're going to get an article that just will make your heart soar with the thought of all that's possible. And I did spend time on, on the phone with Patrick, and it was an extraordinary conversation. And oh, by the way, the funny thing about that is because a lot of people don't even know the connections and things when they just, because that's not who he is, but his brother is Brian Moynihan, the CEO of Bank of America. That's a big freaking deal. But he came from a, he came from that same business world. Like I said, like I said, just moments ago about the wealthiest of the wealthy working with the poorest of the poor. And it didn't phase him, quite frankly, from everything anybody else has told me about him. It, it didn't really phase him. He he didn't get there and complain that like it's too hot or it's blah blah blah. I'm sure everybody does the simple things, but he he thrived there. When he's there, he thrives there. Well, that's uh, that's hard to do. The way he told me the story of the day of the of the earthquake, he was on a neighboring island and was one of the only people on a boat trying to get back to the island of Haiti while everybody else was bailing out. I mean. Yeah, he was he was flying in actually from he he had come for a short stint back to the US. The earthquake happened and he had to figure out how to get in and he's walking through the airport. I can't remember one of the famous Haitian rappers or somebody is coming through the airport and he's like he's on the way out and he says, "Hey," and Patrick says he's like he's like, "Where are you going?" He's going, "I'm going in." <laughs> Everybody else is trying to get out of there. He's like, "I'm going in." Mm-hmm. Well, that's, and that's yeah, that's a lot of the the what I consider heroes to me. These these people who work in this world of philanthropy, they run to the fire. Earl says this all the time. Not away from the fire, they run yeah. to the fire. Yeah, and he's got an idea for education that I just found an obvious model going forward. I know that probably some people will have some sort of notions about it. Some stories are telling themselves because it, it has a religious foundation, but there is nothing in that model that couldn't be replicated in a, in a non-religious way. It's just lots and lots of common sense. Yeah. That's, you know, I, I've referenced and I don't want to camp here too much Longer, but I will tell you that I was because I referenced this bold statement about what people want most. One of my main learnings in this was I was on the border uh, with Syria nearing the end of my nonprofit career. I was on the border with Syria and we were helping to do some things with refugees. And this older patriarchal figure in in this uh, family, they had escaped. They were living in this just kind of cement house, not really a house, but a structure. They didn't really have many, you know, much clothes and all this stuff. They had spent three months on the run, whole family, a family of eight or nine people. 
And his main issue, we brought them food and his main, and he was grateful. They were all very grateful. But his main issue was, and the very first thing he addressed is, because we're Syrian and we're refugees here in Jordan in a place called Mafraq, we are not allowed, our children are not allowed to study. And that is the most upsetting thing to him, this man says. Because, you know, some of, many Syrian refugees, by the way, are doctors, lawyers, they were chemists, they, Mm -hmm. and they wanted their kids to be doctors, lawyers, chemists. So he actually, I have, I wear, if you can't, you won't be able to see on the podcast, but I wear a lot of bracelets is my thing. And he's the one who stood up. He pointed to my bracelets, scared the heck out of me because I thought I had done something culturally, culturally wrong. He stands up, walks across this whole room full of people, walks over to me. He takes a bracelet off of his arm, this 10 little cheap bracelet, one of his only remaining possessions, and he puts it on my arm. I'm like stunned, crying, devastated. So what did I do? I took off a really beautiful silver bracelet that I had gotten in Tunisia, actually put it on his arm. And we had this moment of sharing and love and caring. And so next time you think of a Syrian refugee, think of that beautiful man. Think of that beautiful man who who loved enough to give a total stranger one of his few remaining possessions. Wow. That's extraordinary. And, you know, think about the possibility of connection between two human beings that might never have been acknowledged. I mean, you were both in a situation that that a thread of connection could be celebrated there. I had the same experience in a very remote part of Tibet where I admired a woman's, a very poor woman's mala beads. And she just took them off and gave them to me just like that. Yeah. And, and I and I tried to refuse because I knew she didn't have a lot. And I and I too did the same thing, Craig. I when I I, I realized right away that it was not kosher to to uh to refuse. Refuse. So I ran back to my my room and I got something for her and I still I well I I have that mall of beads just out out of reach here and I still think of the little necklace I gave her and and you know that reminds me of something that is a thread that runs through your book too. Is this notion of who we are at our core. I'm always saying to people, we are not what we see on the internet or social media. We are doers. We are givers. We are, we are rescuers. We have been for millions of years. The advent of the internet didn't change that. And I think one of the things that your stories and your adventures and travel show us in the series, The Good Road, is that in some really remote places where we know the internet hasn't had a giant horrifying impact yet, there is the doers, the givers, the rescuers. That's who we really are out there. So talk to me a little bit about people willing to live in fear yeah, there's a there's a section in the book where you talk about, you know, how we might understand the work of, of missionaries in a different way, even if we're not religious ourselves, how we might appreciate people willing to live in fear and just give their all in service of others. Talk to us about that, because there's there's some beautiful acts of of humanity going on in the world that you guys shine a light on. Well, so first, real quickly, let me just say that this notion of greed and evil that man is predominantly that way. We've talked to several 
actual uh, anthropologists who say that's not true. People at the heart, and this has been proven out, data and information, people are at at the heart good and want to help others. So you you see people, I've always felt a little guilty, I'll be honest, of being the documentarian who swoops in, tells these amazing stories, and swoops back out. And the risk factor on my life is pretty, pretty slim. The odds that I would get killed, although there have been a lot of journalists killed on the front lines, it happens. It does happen. I'm not diminishing that. But I would say that the people who sacrifice themselves to be in harm's way, there I, I know many people who have work situations or work conditions where it requires them. Actually, one family, I'm thinking of a whole family that really their main job is going in and rescuing people who get caught in the middle of war, the civilians who don't necessarily get thought about. You're always seeing military shooting military. and But you don't think of like, like I'm walking to my local 7-Eleven and suddenly there's a an attack goes down and I'm caught in the middle. So I know a family that they, the father goes in and rescues them on the front lines with bullets whizzing. He does that. And then they're literally the whole family, the kids included, are about a mile or two back from the front line. And they're doing things like rescuing or rendering aid and all this stuff. So those people do something that is extraordinary and that I can't even myself admit that I would like give my life to. But that's okay. You know, that's, that's, what, that's what drives them. That's what makes them passionate. You know, an, an, another thing is slightly off the topic, but something you said that I want to make sure that I address to people because it's a, a learning I had along the way is that people, and this comes out a lot in the book, but people don't want you to look down on them. They don't, they want you to be considered your equal. And when I've ever been in a situation and I've been in plenty where I felt guilty for eating the food that I knew they didn't have, you give more encouragement and love to people by accepting their kindness and validating their worth in life. When you accept a gift and you say, thank you, you know, it's American humility, which is a very positive things in so many situations that we don't want to take from others. It's just, we're, we're a gift to others kind of people Mm -hmm. by and large, I would say you don't want to take from others. And, but you have to just break that American attitude and say, thank you. Thank you so much. This is the most delicious food I've ever had. Or however you, you know, say that because, because there is a tendency to not want to take from others. And, you know, we all have to, we all have our own needs too. And we have to give freely, but we also have to receive freely as well. I'd like to take a break from our chat and thank one of the companies that is proving it is still an amazing world with their work. Pura Vita Bracelets is a jewelry company that provides full-time jobs to artisans worldwide and has partnered with more than 175 charities over the last few years to donate nearly $2.8 million to causes selected by their customers when they make a purchase. It's a wonderful model. On the Pure Vita website, you can even shop by cause, whether it's mental health awareness, cancer, autism, wildlife, 
suicide prevention, the environment, and so many more. When you buy from one of their charity sets, 5% of your purchase gets donated to the one you choose. We are a Pura Vida affiliate, which means that when you purchase from Pura Vida by using the link provided down in the show notes, we get a small commission from your purchase and that supports us. This means that you can support actually three things at one time, Everwinding Circles, Pura Vida's great work, and the phenomenal cause you choose. All at the same time, you can do good times three. This is the perfect kind of win-win for our world and our future. Now we'll go back to the show. So how does that, let's get a, another practical twist on that. You know, I, I think that there's some message in what you just said that's connected to our times. What if we develop some gratitude right now for the people who have found a way to protect other people's dignity? Even in all this negativity and chaos, there are some measured, thoughtful, helpful voices out there that I'm always saying we, we need to find and celebrate and get them right up to the top of the internet. So tell me about a, an experience that you may have had that where it would have been easy for people to do one thing, but actually they followed their better impulses in another direction. Do you have anything that comes to mind? Yeah, a, a couple things. You know, f- forgiveness is an incredibly powerful, powerful tool. Okay. And, and right now we need it, it more than ever, right? Right. Now. We do. And, you know, people often associate that solely with religion. Uh, that's not necessarily true. People just, by nature, you feel so much better if you've forgiven somebody. And one of the things, and, and I'm going to use two quick stories from a situation that happened probably midway through my career, I was in Yemen and there had been a shooting at a hospital and there were, uh, there was four Americans who had been shot. Three were shot and killed. And I was talking to them about their story. The one who survived about his story. And he's like, I don't, I just, I feel bad for the guy who he was talking about feeling bad for the guy who shot him and his colleagues to death. That's like, whoa, what in the world? But basically, you know, he understood that that person was so damaged that they did something so horrific and he did not feel truly. And I, and I don't think he was just saying this truly did not feel bad for them or, or he felt bad for the shooter. And you see that happens all the time in the States. You know, you hear people's stories all the time. They don't, they don't want to put somebody, send somebody off to the, you know, the, the electric chair, but Connected to that same story, there was a doctor, one of the doctors who had been killed, who they tell the story that she always gave everything away, just constantly. Every that, that She was so well-loved by the people because she always, not only did she always give everything away, but at one point she gave everything away to the point that I think she had back in the U.S. a relative who had passed or something. And she she didn't have the money. She flat out did not have personally the money to fly back to the United States. Mm-hmm. And she went to some of these people she had been working with for many years. And she said, my, I think it was brother or something has passed and I need to go back to America, but I don't have enough money. And they said, well, we'll give you money. And her reaction was, if it's possible, that would be wonderful. So they gave her the money years. I mean, almost probably a decade later, somebody was talking to the people in that area 
and asking her about her, she's like, oh, she was one of us. They're like, what do you mean she was one of you? She, you know, she's from the United States. She's like, no, she was, she was Yemeni. She was us. And it's like, well, why? And she's like, she wasn't only here to, to help us. We were here to help, help her. Oh, oh, this is, this is super. This is super That's community. important. That's community. This is a super important insight. That's right. That's what we need to get our arms around now. I think it's part of the it's part of the hard things that we have to do in the next six months. I think we're going to have to get on our, our on the edges of our comfort zone and be more curious about people and truly listen to understand. And then we have to make people part of our self map, even people that we yeah. think we have nothing in common with. Because we have everything in common. We started out this conversation talking about the things that everyone wants. Everyone wants their kids to have a better life. Everyone wants right. to know that the next meal for their kids is going to come. They have access to clean water and a safe place to sleep, all that. So if we if we were to, you know, look at the the experiences you have through the lens of doing hard things, of of pushing past something that seemed impossible because certainly there's plenty of us that feel like a coming together is is not possible. I love a quote in your book that 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 I'd love for you to comment on about doing hard things. You were talking about a missionary in the Zambezi area named Livingstone. And he says if you have men who will only come if they know where the good road is, I don't want them. I want the men who will come if there's no road at all. Mm. Mm. Yeah. David Livingston. Yeah. So just a weird, a weird, not history lesson, but kind of David Livingston started out as a missionary in Southern Africa, which at the time was very, very rural, was not what, you know, Southern Africa right now, South Africa and all the Southern Africa countries are, you know, some of the most advanced and whatever. But back then, they were they were uncharted territory, mm-hmm. and he wound up shifting his career to basically fight slavery. That was his main kind of at the end of his career. But he was the one, you know, that's where you get the Livingston, I presume, or whatever. Oh, it's David Livingston. Yeah, if you go to if you go to a place called Victoria Falls, he was the first Westerner to discover Victoria Falls, and not discover, to to come upon Victoria Falls. And there's a huge statue of David Livingston there. He was a pioneer on so many levels, helping people, but also, and like I said, you know, fighting things like slavery. Mm-hmm. He would actually go out and fight slave traders. Yeah, um, personally. So, yeah. So, but that was, that was, you know, he, some of the early pioneers in whether, you know, whatever kind of philanthropy it is, people who have gone out, so, so there were missionaries back in the day who would take all of their belongings on a ship. We actually went over to Thailand on a ship, believe it or not, because we went in 1965 and it was cheaper to fly or to take a ship from San Francisco to Manila Harbor and then fly on the shorter legs. But they would go on a ship and they would actually pack all of their belongings in a coffin because they would go expecting never to go back. Like I think about where I live in Richmond, colonial kind of era, people went on a ship to wherever it was globally 
and they plan not to come back. And you know what they always would have in their belongings in that coffin? They had something called a last letter. And that last letter was to be read to their families and things back. Somehow that letter had to get back to the United States. And that last letter was read to their families. And it was their, you know, why they did it, you know, why they left family behind, why they, you know, were so inspired to do it. And it was always outpourings of love to their families because there was going to be no, you know, possibility of any kind of funeral back here. I think, wow, that's such a tremendous amount of commitment. You know, those people, and those people still do variations on that today. People, whether they work in the UN or whatever their capacity is, they make those sacrifices. And I will tell you, those people are much more interesting to me than, don't tell Chuck I said this, but people who play basketball professionally are people who can cook really well. I mean, those are my celebrities. Yes, yes, yes. And that, and that is the whole the whole thrust of everwideningcircles.com is that we are trying to celebrate the heroes that are whose stories are just getting buried by the negativity yeah. and chaos on the internet. And that's that's the thread that connects your work and you and Earl's work and ever widening circles is that we're celebrating the best in humanity and the best that's out there in the world. That's why you and I hit it off so fast. So, you know, early on was because we had the same mission. When you find somebody who has the same mission, it's like, you know, guy, you know, people in battle, you know, we're on that same team. Like Absolutely. we're going to do that mission. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to pose a pose a funny little question to you here. So, I, my thesis for this podcast is to share with people the vision of possibility, a, a vision of a future that we can't see yet, but that people like you and I can see so clearly. It's what makes us get up in the morning in the worst conditions. I can't even imagine the way you've thrown yourself off a cliff into strange and uncomfortable situations over and over again. And you must be doing that because you see a version of possibility that the rest of us can't see. So at Ever Widening Circles, you know, our view of what's possible is is totally formed by these thousands of articles that we've written about unsung heroes, insight and innovation that almost no one knows about. We just know we're ready to open a new era. We know it because we see it every day at ever widening circles. So give me a little bit of a view from where Craig and Earl sit as, as far as what's possible. If we can start harnessing the best that's in humanity that you see in these philanthropists all over the planet. So I'm going to use it in a person because I love to talk about personal things, as you know, yeah. <laughs> um, not these big philosophical ideas, okay, and the internet and all that yeah. stuff. I did a story some years ago in Uruguay on a young man named Stephen Kunkel and his family. The reason Stephen was of interest to us for our purposes, for the for what I was doing at the nonprofit, was that Stephen is autistic, not severely. I'll I'll say he's not my. I have a nephew who is severely autistic. He is a high functioning and a high functioning autistic. Stephen, for and I don't fully understand how this all dynamic happened. Decided that he really loved Japanese, so 
he started studying Japanese and that became his passion and ultimately wound up and is now currently in Japan working, helping others. So the idea that Stephen, who I met when he was a boy who is autistic, could transform his life from a world of completely, you know, different world of being an American in Uruguay, over now in Japan, working in Japan, with the challenges of living in a world that doesn't always understand autistics, that is just amazing to me. And one of the things I would say is, and this is where things like the internet and stuff have been such a powerful force, a hundred years ago, that would not have been possible. It just would not have been possible. And I think, you know, it's funny because I always like to, I always like to look at when I get bogged down with the Facebook stuff, I'll look at Steven's stuff and he'll always, he's always got these like cool little observations. Like, did you know that in Japan they have a ramen flavor that is, you know, seaweed or whatever he throws out there. And I'm always humored. And he always, he has always got this grin. Like he takes great joy in the simplest of things in life. But now, mind you, that's not because of his autism. That's just his his outlook on life is positive, always 100% positive. And when I stumble across one of his posts, I get joyful. And so if, you know, we just need to accept the fact that there is room for Stevens of this world. And we, when we find them, we need to encourage them and promote them and push them. And let's, let's tell their stories. And I think that's kind of you know, as we said earlier, our mission. So yeah, I don't know if I absolutely. answered your question. But. No, I think you did. Absolutely. So that's, again, part of the choices that we have when we get on the internet, right? We get to choose what to give our attention to. You gave a real practical application there. Whenever you get bogged down on Facebook, you go to Stephen's feed. Yeah, I've clicked I've clicked on Stephen so many times, he's always pops up. <laughs> Okay. So that's one of the things that we, that I'm speaking to people about around the world is that, that we, we can, and you've just described it. We can practice four fundamental shifts when we're on the internet, using it as normal, and we can change what we see on the screens in our own lives and for the whole world, if enough of us do it. And you just described it. The first shift is pause, pause to think about what you're giving your attention to. The second shift is ignore more. You just did that. You said, I'm getting off of this jag I'm on with all this negativity, and I'm going to go look at Stephen's thing. So the third shift is seek signs of goodness and progress, which you did. And fourth, I wonder, is, is the essence of your work, the fourth shift is share signs of goodness and progress. So pause, ignore more, seek signs of goodness, and share it when you find it. So, I, you know, that's at the essence of what connects us both. Happiness is an option. It is. It totally is. So he's given a, given a plug for my, my book there, but it <laughs> is an option. I should have done that 30 minutes ago in this interview, but I'm just hopeless when it comes to self-promotion. No, I, and I say that not pandering. You know, when I read your book and I, and, I, and I even looked at the title, I thought about that and I thought, you know, we do have free will in this world and I'm just going to choose the right path as much as I possibly can. So. Yes. And that's, you know, and that will matter. 
the more people who understand the game being played with our emotions on the internet and opt out of it, (laughs) the more who seek signs of goodness and progress, like the work you're doing, the internet will, will change and it'll change as fast as what we share. Exactly. So I want everybody to share <laughs> the fact that the good road is an amazing place to grow the way you think about possibility and expand your heart. I, now, so tell me exactly the best way for everybody to connect with the work that you're doing. So, you know, in terms of the show itself, it is a broadcast television show. So, and it is broadcast through basically the network that we all know as PBS actually technically distributed through something called American Public Television. It is the first model is very much a check your local listings. So if you have PBS, a PBS station near you, you can either go online there to see if they're still it. it, I'll be honest, the first season aired in uh, starting in April. So it's been through a cycle now for a while. So they do often do reruns. And then we also re it was rebroadcast through WGBH in Boston on something called World Channel. So if you have e- access to either of those, that is the option. Quite honestly, right now we don't have. We're waiting on PBS to put it on their streaming site. So that's where the next location would be. But to keep up with us and to understand what we're doing, we of course have a Facebook page, The Good Road TV. And we also have our website, thegoodroad.tv, and we'd like to put a lot of information about what's going on. We're in discussions right now to be in our second season on the air. And of course, if you know you pay attention to ever-widening circles, we I feel like do a pretty good job of promoting each other. Yeah. So the new season will come out. We're, we're hit, hitting good topics, timely topics, things like racial reconciliation. We're doing more domestic not only because of COVID, but partially because of COVID. So we're hitting some heavy topics. What's it like to be uh, LGBTQ in a place like Myanmar, Mm -hmm. which is like interesting. Mm -hmm. So we're hitting all kinds of cool topics, but just keep up with us through PBS and through our website and through our friends like you all. Cool. This is so great. Okay. So I always like to end my interviews with a question about something that I think we can really share with each other these days that will help us move forward. Right. Okay. So ever widening circles is the name of the website that I founded so many years ago where all the positive news is, but our second line, our byline is it is still an amazing world. That's every article is focused on proving that. So I always like to end these interviews with by asking my guests, what proves it's still an amazing world to you? So it is the people who I interact with each and every day who somehow allow me to see things in a positive way. I'm thinking very specifically of a man who I am about to host here in Richmond, actually. His name is Karim Shamsi Basha. He's, if you can imagine this, he is a Syrian man who grew up in Aleppo, who actually came to the U.S. decades ago, and he lives in Birmingham, Alabama. And he has been told, we, we got on the phone, and this is one of the reasons he's coming to visit me is because he, he writes for Huffington Post and all these people. He's written books and things, but he's just an amazing person. Like every, every 
week, I feel like this is an amazing world because I meet amazing people who I never knew even existed. And, but he told me when he just has such a positive outlook on life and the world around him. And he, he and I just were immediately like you and I just became buds quickly, but he just talked about the struggle of, you know, the perceptions of who Syrians are. And, you know, I, I, I referenced the movie I saw last night and it's an amazing world because when this happens in my universe, call it whatever it is, but in, in my universe, when this happens, things just start coming out, popping out. And I watched this film and this film last night totally stumbled on it completely. It's about, you know, a Syrian refugee kid. And I'm like watching this going, I didn't know that I didn't even read what the topic was on the thing. I just, it seems like an international film. I'm an international film kind of guy. So I know when Kareem gets here, I'm going to tell him I saw this movie. He's going to, Oh, you did some research on me. I'm going to be like, no. (laughs) (laughs) So it's that leaving room for serendipity. Oh, so, so, so little known fact, sorry, I get nerdy when I talk, my kids hate it, but I get geographically nerdy. So the original name for Sri Lanka was Serendip. That was the, the language of the time. That was the name for the island. And explorers, I can't remember, was one of the great explorers, was traveling around South Asia and got kind of in the Indian Ocean somewhere in South, around South Asia. And they, they were completely like the storm was raging and everything, and they thought they were all going to die but they just without knowing anything really about charting, they knew India where India kind of was, but they didn't know about the Island of Sri Lanka and they washed up just miraculously on this Island that we now call uh, Sri Lanka, then called Serendip. And that's where we get this word serendipity. It is a unexpected blessing. That's what that means. And that's the word was coined from Sri Lanka. Yay! (laughs) That is such a wonderful story. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Okay. Well, we've got to leave room for serendipity. And what comes next in meeting people like you and I met and, and putting down our phones more often and just chatting with people that seem open and warm and curious this is going to get us through. If we go back to what what got us here for hundreds of thousands of years, which is being a doer, a giver, we can get there. So thank we you can. so much for bringing people like that to the surface. And we anybody, anything that Craig and I talked about today, you can find down in the show notes. We have some wonderful people that help us with this podcast and they, they won't miss a thing. So, Craig, thank you so, so much for this conversation. We're going to talk again sometime soon. Truly an honor for me. You know it. So can't wait to see you in person sometime soon. <laughs> yes. well. Yeah, yeah. We, we're, we're going to have to get back together again. Great. Okay. So as I mentioned, you can check out everything with our guests' work in the show notes down below. And as always, dive into ever-widening circles. There's a fabulous Everwidening Circles app, which is like having the antidote to the daily news in the palm of your hand. And for just a dollar a month, you can help me keep this measure growing. 
because we need more places on the internet that will lift the best in humanity up. And, and that's our whole goal at Ever Widening Circles. There's the promise of no politics and no commercial agenda there, which is also a little refreshing take. <laughs> so I hope all these connections to goodness and progress will carry you through your week and you start finding that joy and wonder that we've been talking about with Craig here today. Goodness can be viral too. Be a part of it. Have a great day.